Perhaps no book in the Hebrew Bible is more disturbing, befuddling, and thought-provoking than the book of Job. Believers and non-believers alike have wrestled with the ideas and emotions put forth in this strange text for millennia now, and unsurprisingly, they've come to few shared conclusions about it other than perhaps about its enduring greatness and power. My name is Michael Farmer. I'll be your host today on Christian Humanist Profiles, and my guest is Dr. Mark Larimore, who's the director of the Religious Studies Program at the New School in New York City. He's just published a biography of the Book of Job, an exploration of the way the book may have been written and assembled, and a history of the way it's been read and interpreted over the centuries. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. My pleasure. I thought we might begin by talking about the seeds of this project. How long have you been interested in the Book of Job, and what made you conceive of this biography of the text and its interpretation? Well, I've been interested um, in the Book of Job for a long time. Academically, it came rather late. I did my dissertation a bunch of years ago on the problem of evil or theodicy as a category within the comparative study of religion. And what pushed me in that direction was actually the theory of uh, Max Weber, the sociologist of religion, that the problem of evil is the main thing that forces religious change. That religious intellectuals and whatever traditions they find themselves in come up against what he calls the ethical irrationality of the world. And for whatever reasons, and he gives sociological explanations, these intellectuals push thought farther and farther in trying to come to terms with this irrationality, more so than people who are involved in ritual or people who are involved in other kinds of practices. So that seemed to me a very promising and interesting way of trying to think about comparative religion. Um, and for him, the book of Job is really the place where it all begins. So I think that was probably the beginning of my sense of the book of Job. The dissertation wound up being mainly about Leibniz, um, but I got into Leibniz through Kant, and Kant, um, who's known to have tried to pull the rug out from under the Bible as a, as a source of religious knowledge, made an exception for the book of Job. Somehow or other, there was something in the book of Job he thought that you could find nowhere else. Um, so that made me very interested in the book of Job as well. Eventually, I put together an anthology called The Problem of Evil, a reader, um, in which I tried to bring together various different engagements with the problem of evil within the Western tradition um, over several millennia, uh, moving beyond philosophical and theological discussions to include literary ones, ritual ones, um, artistic ones of various other kinds. Um, and at that point in the preface, I remember thinking, well, there really ought to be some biblical text in here. Um, I wouldn't know which ones to give, but I'd better indicate something. So I think I said something like, there's a few passages in Paul that you should definitely read if you're interested in this, and read all of the book of Job. Um, so, and then um, when I started my current job at the new school, at, it's called Eugene Lang College, it's the sort of seminar liberal arts college that was there, um, I had the opportunity to teach a course called Reading Job, and spent an entire semester going through the different interpretations of the book of Job that I'd sort of encountered along the way of these other studies, just trying to see what would happen. And I think it's because I consulted some of my friends at Princeton um, when I was putting together that syllabus that when the series Lives of Great Religious Books was looking for somebody to do the book of Job thing, my name ended up on the list. It's funny how that works out, isn't it? Yes. So, um, and I think that I probably, because I'm not a Bible scholar, was the person they asked who wasn't, who didn't say, no, I couldn't possibly do that. It would eat up the rest of my life. So I, I've, I've met one of those other people who was asked, and she said that was exactly the answer she gave, which is, actually, I have other plans for the rest of my life. <laughs> How long did it take you to put together the uh, biography here? Um, three years. Okay, so still a, a sizable chunk of your life, anyway. A sizable chunk of my life, nothing compared to what it deserves, but at least it's a little book. 
I, I think it's actually very thorough in its way. I mean, I learned quite a bit from this, and I have I've been reading the Book of Job for a long time, so um, I, I definitely recommend the book. What, what do you think it is about this particular book of the Bible that's captured so many imaginations for so many years? Uh, well, lots of things. The one, I suppose, is that it's a very simple story, so it can be described to somebody in just a sentence or two. And that description resonates with a great many different people's experiences. And not very much happens in the book of Job, or rather a great deal happens in the first two chapters. And then there's a great deal of poetry, and a lot of argument, a lot of other sort of stuff that goes on for most of the rest of the book. And then a few things happen at the end, but it's a very intellectual book. Usually if you recounted the story of the book of Job, you'd leave out all of those inner chapters and just give sort of the framework of somebody who has a lot, loses it all, goes through a period of testing, um, and then gets it all back again. And the shape of that story, I think, comes so close to the experience of many people at many different times that Job spoke to them. There's not a lot of other complicating characters. There's lot, lot, lots, of, not lots of other things. He doesn't you know, bargain with God, whatever else it is. That somehow there's something about that story that makes it very accessible. At the same time, the poetry and the arguments of the inner chapters, I think, spoke specifically, again, I was talking about Weber's sort of religious intellectuals, but for, for people who are trying to find language for some of the most difficult and mysterious and heartbreaking parts of human experience. So I guess those would be two reasons. The story itself is very compelling, resonates a lot with a lot of people. And then if you get beyond the story, or not look at beyond it, but if you look beyond that to the poetry itself, it, 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 it speaks to the search for language for articulating those things which may be most difficult to give words to. And it may be the closest thing to a universal text in the Bible, right? I mean, one thing you learn from reading your book is that it has it has proved this magnet for interpreters from all faiths and all traditions and all orientations and attitudes, and they all just kind of converge on it at various points. Yeah, I think that that's partly it, it, it stands separate from the history of the people of Israel recounted in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So it happens in some place in the east, um, the east of wherever it is. It, it fits into what we would now call wisdom literature. So it has a kind of cosmopolitan um, accessibility. It, doesn't, it isn't located within this specific history. So people who find difficulty in relating themselves to the history of, of God's chosen people might still find something in the book of Job that speaks to them. Um, he also has an unmediated relationship with God, so far as we can tell. That is, before the beginning of the story, Job does very well. He's a very virtuous person. He seems to have some kind of a relationship that works with God. And then then things go awry, or depends on how, how, you, how, you, how you read what happens at that point. But, but my sense is, and I, I try to argue that in the book as well, that um, because he doesn't actually come to faith, doesn't come to God through a, uh, a ritual tradition or through a covenantal tradition or through even a scriptural tradition, um, that again makes him very accessible to people who find themselves either not participants in such traditions or alienated from or disappointed by them. Let's talk about that category you uh, you brought up of uh, wisdom literature. What does it mean for Job to, to be wisdom literature? Well, um, he's asking, he's, uh, he's asking um, existential questions that are put in terms of individual destiny um, with respect to the meaning of the universe, I guess, or the meaning of human experience, the existence of God, uh, very broad general questions like this that can be articulated in a form that would be accessible to and um, embraced by people from a number of different religious traditions. I think you could put it that way. 
Sure. And and what other books would fit in there? Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Yeah. So it's it's these these books that don't seem to have cut and dry answers. Yeah, and compared to Ecclesiastes, it's actually quite a hopeful book. That's true. That's true. Although you know they get they often get grouped together as kind of the downer books of the Hebrew Bible. I guess if you take off the last chapter of Job, it's more of a downer. Well, your book is not exactly an analysis or an interpretation of the book of Job. Yeah. Instead, it's it's a history of all these other interpretations, many of which I have to say I was not at all familiar with. Uh, can you talk about the particular challenges and rewards of that approach rather than just analyzing the book yourself? Um, I guess the easy answer is this way. I don't have to come to a final interpretation of my own. Um, I find that I have learned a great deal from all these different interpretations, and even just in conversations I've had with people since the book came out, I keep learning more things. So I think if somebody sat me down and said, we want to know what your your understanding of this book is, I would find it very difficult to, to finish. That it seems to me so almost overwhelmingly rich in possibilities. And as I say, at some point, it's kind of a mousetrap for interpretations. My sense is that various people have come along, done their best to interpret it in one way or another, but there's more text than they can make sense of. Yeah. The text somehow or other gets, gets beyond them. This is probably true about everything in the Bible, but it's especially true, I think, of, of Job, that um, there's always some part of it. It's like a bump. I mean, it would be, I, don't, I don't mean to be trivializing. It's like that, that, that bubble, under a, the bump, bubble of air under a carpet or something. But you can try to flatten it out and say, I know exactly what this is about. Or, I know exactly what genre this is. Or, I know exactly what the problem is that it's trying to address. Or, I know exactly where it is that it wants us to go, and then there's always going to be some part of it that just doesn't quite fit. So, um, one way of engaging with the book of Job without having to come to a final interpretation would be to spend a lot of time with other people's interpretations. And do that not as a way of trying to poke holes in them, but set one next to another next to another saying, this one shines a lot of light on it. This one brings out something really important. This one establishes something that we might not otherwise have focused on. All of them seem to be giving us some kind of a purchase on this extremely complicated text. And actually, that's something I really liked about your book, which is you, you don't at all talk down to any of the interpretations that you report here. You're very, very fair and very kind to really everybody who's reading this book alongside you. So I think um, you, you talk about the book of Job being polyphonous, of, of having these many voices. Mm -hmm. your, your book adds even more voices to it, and I think it is, it is rewarding in that sense. Well, well thank you. I'm actually I'm, I'm glad to hear that because when at the sort of the early stages of the book, one of the university press's readers um, took issue with the way in which I was framing it and thought that my attempts to contextualize readings in terms of the period, the assumptions of the projects of these different interpreters was a way of trying to belittle them. And um, that, that bothered me a lot because that wasn't my intention, but I could see why some people might see it that way, as if I'm trying to say, oh, well, this is, this is dated, of course, because it comes from the 14th century. Instead of saying, if we understood the circumstances under which this was happening, we would see how this um, gives, us, gives us something that couldn't have happened in any other way. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I didn't get the feeling at all you were belittling them. That's, um, that's very strange. Well, I don't know. I guess it was somebody who, and this is sort of an interesting intersection. I know you're in, in literature, and I think there's sort of a difference between literature and philosophy people, that literature people get this, and some philosophy people don't. They think that... Um, I don't know, that a, that a philosophical argument must be true independent of the person who made it and the circumstances under which that person made the argument. And if you have to bring that person, their biography in or a context, then that must be indicating some kind of a weakness or blindness on the part of the thought. And um, 
I obviously don't think that's true at all. I think you actually understand things even even more powerfully if you can put them in the context in which they emerge. And that's not a way of saying, now you stay put in the 14th century, because, of course, we're engaging with them in the 21st. We want to learn from you. And look, we're talking. We can we can learn from each other. Yeah, right, right. It, it's, it's, just, it's just humanizing them. It's making them more than an argument. It's making them a person making an argument. Which, you know, it's kind of what we're doing with the Book of Job as well, right? We're talking about where it comes from and it's written during a certain time but that doesn't mean it doesn't speak to other times that's right and i guess also since we don't actually know when the book of job was written or by whom or how or how they were inspired it's it's almost like we have the closest we can get as a way of trying to acknowledge that that kind of thing matters is to attend to various people's locations as they engage it well, let's talk about the textual history as much as we can. Um, you point out in the book repeatedly that the, the text of the Book of Job comes to us in a rather fragmentary, damaged form. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that textual history and, and some of the challenges that that provides to interpreting it? Um, sure. So um, I mentioned already that the Book of Job in some sense seems to contain two main parts, one of which is a story that some people understand as being a very folkloric kind of story. Um, although other interpreters have said, oh, well, you know, it takes a really good writer to write a really good folk story. So if it's written in this folk story, folkloric way, that doesn't mean that it's actually a folklore story. It might be somebody else who's using that as a way of trying to make a point. In any case, there's that, that the, the, the frame story, which is in, in prose, and then the centerpiece of it, all the rest of it is written in poetry. Um, and these are quite, quite different. And most interpreters now think that one or the other either came first or usurped or tried to interfere with the other, there are very few people um, who think that it could have come from the same source. Um, one of those is Carol Newsom, from whom the um, polyphony language that you just referred to comes from. And I think even for her, it's just a suggestion. She's saying, actually, these parts fit together so well. They work so well. It's not just that one of them gets subverted by the other, but that they interfere with each other in such a productive way an endlessly challenging, productive way that, you know, one might actually see some single intention behind the whole thing. So, um, in any case, we end up with those, those two parts, and then as you break it down more, or as you analyze it more carefully, then it starts to seem that there are other missing sections. Um, there's a speaker who comes in named Elihu, uh, who is the fourth friend, but we were told that Job has three friends. Um, and he comes in and says a whole bunch of things that seem to anticipate some of the things that are about to happen later in the book. And Carol Newsom, again, has this very wonderful reading of Elihu, um, who a number of other contemporary readers had said is a clearly late addition to the text, and it messes it up, and blah, 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 blah. And instead, she says, um, he really represents the first reader. It's almost like huh. one of the things about this book would be, as you come to the book of Job, is it fills you yourself with all these things that you wish somebody had said, or you wish that somebody had said differently, um, because it's also about this breakdown of conversation between Job and his first three friends. So she suggests that we could see Elihu as doing as sort of modeling what we as readers do, which is we can't actually keep ourselves out of it, or we shouldn't, that there's something about this exchange. Um, it's like you're watching an exchange and you're just sort of seeing it going south and you want to stop and you say, no, no, stop, 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 listen, 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 let me, let me put this another way, let me make this clear. Oh, you seem to have missed this point this person was making. So again, there's ways of seeing Elihu as, um, as, as part of an intentional project. Well, it's good news for the reader because God doesn't tell Elihu he was wrong, unlike the other friends. That's right. So, um, and so one way of telling that story is to say, oh, well, you know, Elihu was at it after God had already commend, uh, condemned the other three friends. But the other one way of looking at it is, is just as you said, which is like, well, God 
condemns three friends and not Elihu. So maybe Elihu is, is the way out or through. And I, I mentioned some of the interpreters who, who noticed that and sort of took that as a way of seeing his importance, especially the medieval Jewish interpreters like Maimonides, for whom Elihu, Elihu said all the important things. In contemporary um, sort of secular interpretations, Elihu usually gets left out. When people give their little summary of the story, Elihu isn't mentioned. Um, and so that complication, that wrinkle, that additional level that, that Elihu brings to it um, disappears from their way of reading it, which, which I think is unfortunate. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think they leave him out? Um, it's sort of awkward. It's, it's awkward, I guess, in some way because, well, for one thing, and this is something that I argue in one of, I forget which, which chapter, another thing I call the impatience of Job interpreters, um, which was an attempt to say that there's something about a lot of contemporary readings that's a little bit impatient with the text, that they want the text to be easier to dissect than it is, and it would be easier to dissect if Elihu weren't there. So you just say, well, Elihu must have come along much later. Elihu can't be part of the story. We can't, Elihu can't be part of the story we tell about how this text emerged. And that might be because Elihu breaks the rhythm of it enough that if Elihu is taken seriously, um, it changes the nature of the book. So there is um, an, uh, an, a translator of Job um, named um, Scheindlin, who teaches at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, um, who thinks that Elihu is the most important chapter. And he says it's the most important chapter because what happens in this story is that Job calls to God to speak. God doesn't speak. Job's friends speak for God. Job responds to them. God doesn't speak. The more they try and speak for God, the more Job criticizes them, the more he calls God to speak to sort of vindicate him, and God doesn't speak until Elihu. So on Scheinland's view, it's Elihu who coaxes God into speaking, that he actually plays this very important place role sort of within the literary texture of the book, that it is he who actually ushers in the divine speeches, that maybe the, they would not otherwise have happened. And so to take them out, take the Elihu speeches out, um, in some ways for his reading would, would makes, makes God's speeches seem sudden and out of place or out of time, when in fact in the text taken as a whole, um, they arrive just at the exact right moment. I should say there's another thing that, another passage that everybody now thinks was added later, which we call sort of the Poem of Wisdom, which is chapter 28, um, which contains some of the most beautiful and important lines in Job, and certainly very, very important in the history of interpretation, especially in traditions of faith. And that one also gets left out, out of contemporary readings. So I found there's a, there's a poetic translation of the book of Job that's, that's widely used in universities that leaves Elihu out, that leaves the, 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 the Ode to Wisdom out. And there's a way in which the people who are reading that translation are not getting the full text. They're not getting the whole message, whatever it was. That's a shame. All I can think of now is uh, Franny and Zoe, where, where, uh, by Salinger, where, where Zoe yells at his sister for praying to the wrong Christ. <laughs> you, wonder, you wonder if they're praying to the wrong Job. Yeah. Uh, you talk about a lot of interpretations here. And, and of them all, I think the one that is most likely to seem alien to modern readers of really any stripe is this ancient allegorical method. Um, you can you connect this other version of Job, the Testament of Job, which we can talk about if you'd like, and you, you connect that to the Midrashic tradition. Um, can you connect both of those maybe to the patristic allegorical tradition and then set them all off against modern methods of reading and interpreting the book? That's a huge question. That is a huge question. Um, but I think, uh, I think one could, again, so I, I learned a lot from James Pugel's book, How to Read the Bible. And 
he has this very interesting idea that those texts that we now know as the Hebrew Bible and many parts of the Christian Bible were put together at a particular moment by people who inherited a bunch of stories that had been told and used in ritual and other settings, um, but they became script. They became sort of scripture text um, at a particular moment for people who had a particular sense of what this, this, this text should be. And he calls those the ancient interpreters. And the ancient interpreters for him include the several centuries before Christ and a few centuries beyond it. So I use his, his concept of the ancient interpreters as a way of trying to talk both about these midrashic interpretations, some of the patristic ones, um, and sort of the beginning of the allegorical, and then this very strange thing called the Testament of Job. And one of the things that all of these readings have in common, he says, is that they all assume that the text is complete and perfect. Um, but if there are gaps in it that you can't fill, uh, you'll be able to find the missing thing in another part of the text. So you take whatever your canon of scripture is, and if there's some kind of a mystery, some kind of a gap, some kind of apparent incongruity in your text, you don't say, oh, this must have been corrupted by some editor, or something must have gone wrong in the historical transmission of this text. Instead, you say, aha, we were supposed to notice that. The deeper meaning of this text reveals itself to to us in precisely those moments where it seems to be blemished, where there seems to be a gap, where there seems to be pointless repetition, where there seems to be some kind of a contradiction. And because they assume that the text is complete and perfect, um, then you have to sort of figure out what it is that's being told to you, especially in those moments where the text seems not to be. So you take whatever the canon of your scripture is, and you, 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 you go through it with a fine-tooth comb to try and find an answer to each of those questions generated by each part of it. So for all of those readers, the book of Job is not the only inspired book. It's one of a number of other books. So just the way when you're trying to understand what some word means in one Shakespeare sonnet, you'd look at other Shakespeare sonnets. Same author, same genre, right? Um, so you would look to other texts to try and fill in the details. So that's, that's one way of reading it in which um, the assumption is that there's a deep meaning, um, that the entire thing is self-interpreting, not, not self-interpreting, but that the answer, the key to every question, to every problem that's raised by it will also be found within Scripture. Um, and then you fill in the details. You work them out. One thing that's very interesting about the Midrashic tradition is um, a kind of joy in the sheer multiplicity of possible solutions. That you find some strange question, like what happens to Dina, and then, or Dinah, and, um, and, and then a bunch of different rabbis or different teachers will have come up with different answers. And whoever it is who put down the, uh, the Midrash didn't sort them out and didn't say, well, this person said this and he was wrong, and that other person said that, and that can't be true. Instead, they'd say, well, there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this. Um, and isn't this a wonderful text? Isn't it great that there are just so many, there's such a profusion of, of readings and meanings that sort of come out of it? And I, I detect a similar kind of delight in just the sheer fecundity of the text in the allegorical tradition. And I think you're right to say that the allegorical tradition is even stranger to us than the one I just mentioned before, which is not that different from people who will take a, a biblical story and try and retell it in a homily, for example. Um, but in the allegorical one, you get the sense that, in fact, the Christian, the Christian scriptures are different from every other kind of text being written by God. And therefore, they have every word has four different kinds of meaning. And you need lots of apparatus to figure out what those different meanings are. Um, and by my book would say, you know, Gregory the Great or whoever else it is. So we could go into that, but maybe we shouldn't. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think if we went into that, we'd probably use up the rest of our time because, I mean, yeah. it's obviously so rich with uh, interpretive possibility. It's a very different version of 
what you might call inerrancy than you right. see in contemporary evangelicalism. In some ways, a much richer version. I yeah. think. And one of the things I try and bring out, one of the things that sort of came to me as I was discussing this, especially with students, is that in order to take the allegorical reading of Scripture seriously, you have to look at the world differently. So it can't just be that the words in this book are capable of having four different meanings. But it must be that everything that comes from the source of this book, which would be everything created, if, you, if you're a Christian approaching this, would also have all these different meanings. So there is, the world itself is, is, is full of hidden, history is full of, nature is full of, human experiences are full of deeper God-given meaning, meanings that we can't immediately understand simply by looking at the surface meaning of them. So one of the things that engagement with a, a text allegorically would do is it would teach us how to see the rest of experience itself as God-filled and full of that multiplicity of meanings. So, so in, tried, interpretation of text creates interpretation of life, or vice versa. Yeah, or they, 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 they help each other in various ways. And I think it's very important. I mean, one of the things that I thought as I was putting this book together, and, and you'll have noticed this, I'm sure, is that I had a whole bunch of different audiences in mind, um, and none of them particularly clearly, but a number of them were people who don't know how to take the Bible seriously at all. Um, think it's just a storybook full of old stories, um, or, I don't know, the, 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 don't think that it's worth studying it carefully. Uh, don't think there's any thought in it. Don't think that there's, there's, there's discoveries about, about the human experience of the cosmos in it. So I try and drag those readers into readings that are just too weird to dismiss, but too fascinating to close the book. <laughs> That's the hope. <laughs> and, we're and we're back to Job just kind of confounding everybody. Mm -hmm. Job the book, not Job the person. I, guess, the he, I guess he kind of confounds everybody too. He sort of, I mean, I think he confounds even himself. That's part of, part of the power of his story. Literally at his wit's end, he is... <laughs> Well, as your book as your book moves into the uh, medieval and Renaissance eras, you begin to examine the way Jews and Christians of that period, those periods, read uh, the Book of Job as a work of philosophy. And in particular, you say that the reading that Maimonides offers in the Guide for the Perplexed forms a microcosm for Maimonides' whole project. Uh, what results does reading Job as philosophy yield? Um, for Maimonides, or just more generally? Uh, either one. We could start. You could start with Maimonides and move it more generally, if you'd like. Okay. Well, that's, uh, you thought you said the last question was big. I know. I'm sorry. I ask huge questions. <laughs> but it, um, so, one of the one of the points I try and make in that chapter is to bring in certain ways people now uh, change the sense of what philosophy should be doing. So there's a way of thinking about philosophy that was very common when I was in school. Um, that philosophy is almost like a science. It tries to sort of figure out various problems and define them very carefully and then through a kind of experimental thing arrive at deductive, um, entirely data-supported evidential conclusions. i got to say that's pretty gross. I, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm more or less an existentialist, so like, mm -hmm. when, you, when you talk about philosophy that way, it makes me a little sick. Yeah, it, 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 does, it doesn't speak to me much either. So the, uh, there's, there's other traditions of philosophy, one of which is, well, the history of philosophy is full of systems. So you're not actually going to get a sense of what philosophical thinking is if you don't spend your time reading a lot in the attempt of a whole bunch of great philosophers to try and think about things. Because maybe the really important thing isn't identifying individual problems, but seeing how these problems resonate with and relate with each other, relate to each other in various ways. So you spend your time, you know, you spend a whole semester reading Hegel, say, or a whole 
graduate degree reading Hegel or something like that. <laughs> and you still like, understand about 5% of them. Yeah, um, but, but still that somehow or other that philosophy is more about teaching you that way of thinking. And Kant himself, actually, when he wrote, I mentioned Kant before, but when Kant, Kant thought you couldn't teach philosophy, but you might be able to teach people how to philosophize. And I think the book of Job, to come to your question, might teach people how to philosophize. And part of that might be by, it doesn't give you an answer. It gives you a bunch of answers, um, each of which is inadequate in various ways, but it presents arguments to you in different forms. Um, it gives you a setting in which somebody who has a, a, a deeply upsetting experience that is very difficult for people to understand tries to articulate what that is, um, and then his friends come along and try to understand it in terms of whatever the best philosophies of their time are. And as I mentioned, especially in the Maimonides section, lots of different interpreters in the medieval period and later have sort of said, well, Job had three friends, so they must represent the three most important philosophies, which are, and then they would find ways of reading whatever they thought the three most important philosophies were into Job's friends. Um, but if you look at that central section of the book of Job, as I see it, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophical conversation. It's not the best of philosophical conversations, but it's, it's, it's full of beauty, full of argument, full of... Um, passion, full of um, the emotional part of philosophical argument as well, um, because there's this real sense in which friendships are being tested and, 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 and faith is being betrayed. So one of the reasons why Job finds himself increasingly calling to God or some kind of a vindicator or an avenger or somebody to stand up for him is because his friends um, are getting him wrong. And he is so committed or has been so committed with them to the way of seeing the world which they had shared that as they show that that system of understanding the world doesn't make sense of him, um, he, find, he feels the need for something that will transcend even his human perspective. He doesn't know what that will be. Um, sometimes he suggests that it will be something like a court of law. At other times he says quite different things. Um, David Kleins, who's a very interesting evangel uh, evangelical commentator on the book of Job, counts up whole bunch of different Job speeches. I think he finds nine of them, and he says each of them is a different argument, that even Job moves from one engagement to another. So there are ways of taking the book of Job and breaking it down into a whole bunch of separate arguments and then putting them back together again, saying this is how one argument generates another. This is how one leans too far in one direction and generates another kind of view. So to me, that gives a very interesting sense of philosophizing as something you would do with your friends or something you would do with the people who care about the same things you care about, which I think is not a bad way of understanding philosophy at its best. And it's an ancient way, right? Because Aristotle talks about uh, friendship being these shared intellectual goals that we, we come together for. So I, I, think that, I think that fits in with the history of philosophy pretty well. Right. And then the highest form of friendship is that of, of people who are friends of justice, who love justice together. So one of the things that um, I try to, one of the few things in the book that there's more of in my thinking than in most of my sources, so if I had to say the thing that I added, one of them is I stand up for the friends, and I stand up for the friends partly in humility, in the sense that I think there's a hubristic danger of readers now of the book of Job who will look at it and say, I'm better than his friends. I can do better than they did. They got everything wrong. They were reproved by God. But I, 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 I know what's going on. I can tell you. Whereas to me, it seems like the book of Job invites us to think we're better than the friends and then should somehow convince us that the chances of it are pretty slim. Um, and maybe we could be better friends to Job, but we should sort of try and take him seriously. I also think that somehow the, the, that whole long section of the, of the dialogue between Job and his friends would just be a waste of space if they weren't real friends, if they weren't really trying. 
if they weren't really try if they weren't really reminding him of arguments that he had with them shared before that it wouldn't be the breakdown of thought or it wouldn't be experience coming to the limits of human articulation if it didn't represent the best of human thought or the best of the shared understanding of things that Job and his friends had worked out over many years. So the particular existential crisis that Job confronts and maybe doesn't, his friends don't get, that's one of the big problems, but is, is, is the fact that their shared world, their shared world of meaning um, is, has been seriously upset by what's happened to him. And they come, and for the first seven days, they don't say anything. They're very good friends. They don't start talking until he starts talking. And then, depending on your reading, he provokes them to speak. They provoke each other to speak. But it can be understood, as many of these medieval interpreters did, as a, a very powerful illustration of what a passionate discussion among shared lovers of justice would be about things that transcend human understanding. Yeah, the the the, uh, the line at the beginning about how they just sit there for seven days is so so moving in its simplicity and its refusal to actually describe anything. Mm -hmm. So there's some people who think that sitting shiva, sort of the Jewish tradition of of sitting silence after somebody died, traces back to this. This is one of those things where I think even if I were a biblical scholar, I wouldn't be able to say which came first. But there's something very beautiful about that. I think it's also very interesting, and the reason why I picked the image that's on the front of the book. Um, which is a picture of Job's friends. I think mine's the only book on the book of Job that doesn't have a picture of Job or God on the front. <laughs> or, or Job's children being destroyed or something like that. It's actually three, his friends in three different attitudes of distress. And it's that moment, even before they sit with him for seven days, where they, they, at first they don't even recognize him. He's been so disfigured by, by, by what's happened to him that they don't even know that it's him. And then I, I take the, the scene that's represented in that, in that image, uh, which is from a Byzantine Bible at the, in the Vatican from, I think, the 8th century, to be that moment of recognition where they suddenly recognize that this, that this thing in front of them that people have said is Job and they didn't think it was, they thought it was someone else. Suddenly they realize that this is what their friend has, what has, what has become of their friend. Um, and he's still there, and yet the ruin of it is overwhelming to them. So one tears his hair, and one of them is crying, and one of them is tearing his clothes and stuff like that. But um, I think that the, the, the friend's first reaction is the right one. And it's not to say, oh, Job, I know what's happening to you. Or, Job, you're an object, you're, you're an object less than in something, rather. The first one is this real sense of tearing, their, sort of tearing their own clothes in grief and then just being with him when nobody else would. And the figures on the left in this picture are the same as the figures on the right, the same people? Um, that, that's their retainers. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say, well, you, you get right. them aging um, just, just from seeing them, but I guess... Uh... No, these are just... They're, 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 um, this is, so again, part of that, that tradition that we also see in the, in the Testament of Job in which they're kings. So there are these, these are their servants who are holding their crowns and their horses. Oh, well, I thought I was on so a for a moment. People. But I mean, okay, even better to look like they have actually been sort of, if you can actually sort of see it before or after, they show up looking fine and then suddenly they are themselves sort of brought down by, by this encounter with disaster. Well, speaking of disaster, I have, I have to say that my own attraction to the book of Job comes from my, where I think yours does too, which is the, the problems it raises for theodicy. Um, what's interesting to me is that people seem to have turned to it both to prop up their theodicy and to dismantle it. Um, mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about Job's complicated relationship with the problem of evil? Uh, your questions get bigger and bigger. Uh, no, no. 
again, not to be flipped, that's what happens with the book of Job. You start out with what seems like you think you know the problem is, and then the more you try and puzzle it out, um, the more every other question comes into it. So um, depending how we define the problem of evil, Job isn't about it, or it's quintessentially about it. One of the very interesting things about the character of Job in the book of Job is that he never asks, why me? And he doesn't get an answer to that question either. Um, he's confused by what happens. It doesn't make sense to him that it's happening to him, um, but it sort of opens him to a broader sense of the prosperity of the wicked, the sense that, in fact, there is no moral, moral order to the, uh, to the universe. So in that way, maybe it is what the problem of evil is about. But I think when people talk about the problem of theodicy now, and now would be, say, the modern period since the 18th century, um, the question really is, and, and I try and get into this in the book, a uh, question about, like, so um, if there is as much evil as this, as, as this, could there be a god? So it's the, like, god or evil question, which is, like, either there's a god, in which case everything should be much better than it is, or at least must be better than it looks, or... Um, things prove that there isn't a God. But the way the book of Job is set up, since God is there at the beginning, and God comes through at the end, the, the, the question about the existence of God never arises. Job never says, I think there's no God. None of his friends ever say, I think there's no God. So they're, they're, they're wrestling with the problem of evil, if we call it that, isn't wrestling with what, what um, Merrill McCord Adams has called the atheistic problem of evil, which says... We know we're more sure about the existence of evil than we are about the existence of God. And in fact, the existence of evil makes us wonder whether there is a God. That's not what, what Job is doing. Job is doing something else, which is like this thing that is happening to me, whose meaning I don't even fully understand, makes me wonder if I know who God is. Um, but there's no, no moment in which Job ever um, is tempted by atheism. So in that way, I think the book of Job is quite different from contemporary theodicy discussions. But... That said, as, as you said, there's also atheists and others who took to turn to the book of Job and use it as their proof, as, as their proof text, saying, ah, well, there's this, this monotheism idea um, could only become monstrous given the experience that we know that many human beings have of disaster, of genocide, of the utter meaningless slaughter or whatever else it is. Um, and here is the Bible itself admitting it that even if in other parts of the Bible God comes across as benevolent, in the book of Job, God's true colors are shown. And that's, it's a wonderful thing that the book of Job, which they would say was written by human beings, shows that the idea of monotheism, if you push it far enough, turns against itself, that it makes God into a monster. So it's interesting that at the same time that some people would see this as a very profound description of the difficulty of living with God, of trying to understand what this God thing is, what this creator um, who is behind everything means for human beings trying to understand things. Um, other people would take the same text and say, this shows there's no God. And certainly the, the God in the last few chapters of that book is a very strange one, right? I mean, he, he, he just kind of comes in and explodes at Job and asks all these questions about how big he is and how small Job is and never gives him the answer he's looking for. No. Although, and again, sorry to keep referring to the book, but I did put all the things that I, almost all the things I thought were great into the book. Um, one of the things that's very interesting, and G.K. Chesterton brings this out, is the sense that whatever it is that God says to Job, maybe Job was satisfied by it. He seems to be. 
Right? So, I mean, again, so the, the atheistic readings will say, well, God comes aloud and goes, goes blah, 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 like a big bully. And Job realizes, okay, you're bigger than I am. I better shut up. And then he gets rewarded, which is disgusting. Um, but there are other readings in which what God gives him is not only some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible, um, but there's something in it. There's an, actually an argument or something, some kind of an argument. And so that Job, when he then says, okay, I, I was talking about things I didn't understand, means it. He's not saying, oh, you're so big, I'm so small, I'd better just lie low. But instead, um, you know, probably my favorite line in the whole thing, you know, I'd heard you from the, with a hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. That somehow or other I've come to a deeper understanding of things than I, than I could have had before. I could have had either through a life of piety and virtue, or even through suffering, or through philosophy, through the exchange with my friends of the best ideas available to me. There's something that, that you have just given me in these speeches that puts my soul, that, that brings me peace. Which makes sense. I mean, how many people in the Hebrew Bible does God speak to directly yeah. for, for any amount of time? Mm -hmm. Much less, right. what is it, four chapters, three chapters? And it is, it's, it's a very long, very, very, very powerful speech. And I think, well, I, I'll just mention two things that are interesting about it that the, the different interpreters have made of it. And one of them is, um, and actually they're both Jewish interpreters, one of them is the view that Maimonides and others take, which say that God... Um, shows his transcendent of human categories by talking about nature and never talking about the human and doesn't talk about the human role in nature at all. Um, and that this is actually the best way of representing a providence which is beyond our providence. So it doesn't actually tell us how we can slot our own experience into these things at all. Of course, if you're a Jew or a Christian, there are other parts of the Bible that tell you that, right? You don't need the book of Job to do it for you. But this is the one place where God says, you know, I'm really off the charts. The other things that I'm doing, which you can sort of recognize as a form of providence, um, you can't translate, you can't figure out what they would mean for human life at all. But there's no question that there is this, that there is order, that there is providence, that there is good governance in the rest of nature, which is much bigger than the human. So you can see it as an argument that way, an argument that's not an argument. It says, I'm not even going to talk about the human, I'm going to talk about other things. And on the other hand, there's a way of reading that Martin Buber focuses on, which I guess I forgot to put in the book, um, that the most important thing isn't what God says, but that he speaks to Job, that he speaks mm. to a human individual. That sure sounds like Martin Buber, doesn't it? Yeah, and, that that's, and that's, that's, that's the single most important thing. And, and given what he does say in the situation, there's nothing he could have said. There's nothing that could have been said by Job or by anybody else that could really change the fundamental significance, which is that the absurd universe addresses itself to the individual in distress by name. I'm kind of stuck on the first interpretation now, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if it's harder for us to understand that because the natural world seems much more under our control than it must have to, to the people who wrote Job. Yeah, but it also seems an awful lot bigger. Yeah, I guess especially if you think about the cosmos. I mean, I guess if I guess if we were writing the Book of Job today, God would talk about dark matter. But yeah, but instead, He talks about the sea monsters. Mm -hmm. That's okay. So, you know, when I said that everybody, every conversation I have with Job teaches me something um, that I had that, that dark matter sea sea monster thing. Can I take that from you and credit it to you next time? I uh, absolutely, up? you don't have to credit me. That's very nice. I guess one other thing, one last thing to say would be that. Um, there is this moment which I, I think you're you're quite familiar with it in some of your teaching and well as well in which um, atheistic philosophers have found their way back to religion as they call it sort of like the, the turn to religion or the theological turn. Um, there's lots of Christian philosophers, of course, but in Europe especially, there's a bunch of 
post-Christian philosophers who are now finding that there are certain things to be found in the Bible or in various Christian teachings that are really the really really good, really useful for expressing various things. And I think I think the the continued salience of the Book of Job in those discussions is kind of a nice illustration of how it is that the wherever the hell it came from, the Bible. Um, says something of lasting significance for human existence um, that people find powerful even if they don't believe there's a God. And if there is a part of the Hebrew Bible that belongs to the kind of broader cosmopolitan literary tradition, it's the book of Job. I mean, for, for reasons that, that go back to what you were talking about at the very beginning, that this this exists somehow outside and inside the canon. It's both typical of the Hebrew Bible and entirely atypical of the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So I mean, just to, I mean, you could sort of take as as a pendant to the, the the Buber point, which is that maybe the amazing thing about the Book of Job is that the cosmos addresses itself to the human individual. You might also say that one of the great lessons of the Book of Job is that the language of God is the best, if not necess- not perhaps even the necessary language for talking about the question of the individual's relationship, the human relationship to the cosmos. So you could go there as well, maybe. And it's largely an interrogation. Yes. Well, it is a cliche to talk about the patience of Job, and many readers of the book have argued that he's not nearly as patient as his reputation would lead us to believe. I think you make pretty good cases for both sides of the patient-impatient argument here. Uh, how do you think we should think about Job in terms of that particular virtue? Um, I'm glad you asked that, because that's one of the points that I think gets lost in the way in which people take the book, claim that the book of Job falls apart into like the frame story, which is about a Job who's very patient, who doesn't complain, and then the central poem, which is full of Job evidently complaining. Um, <laughs> a number of people will say, and they're wrong, that Job curses God. He doesn't. The whole point of the story is that he doesn't. And so whatever he's doing in the middle is not cursing God. It's something else. And what I try and suggest is that it might get you some way to say, well, on the outside, we have somebody who's the patient Job who says, if the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then at the end, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I retract all my words. And then another one who rails against Job, against God um, or against what appears to be God's callousness and indifference. Um, and so there's a tendency to call the outside one the patient Job and the inside one the impatient Job. But one thing that I get, and I get it partly from Kierkegaard. I know you're interested in existentialism, so you'll know more about this than I do. But Kierkegaard gets from, from Johann Georg Hamann this idea that what the Bible does, or what Bible stories do, or what the figures in the Bible do, is they give us um, the complex nature of theological virtues um, in ways that can never be explained in merely human language. So if you really want to understand what faith is, abide with Abraham on Mount Moriah. Mm-hmm. And once you think that you figured out and put it into words, then you go back and start over again. Because as soon as you think you've been able to take Abraham out of your definition of faith, you have lost faith, right? He says, so there's that repeated line in, in fear and trembling. It's like, then we've lost, I forget what exact language, but then Abraham is lost and we are lost and, and there is no such thing as faith. I, I, I think a similar a sort of a parallel argument could be made about Job and patience as understood in this deeper way in which it's the same person who both has this underlying sense that God gives and God takes and also um, demands accounting of some kind and then also in some strange way capitulates or caves or melts or whatever it is that happens at the end. So the same way that one might say that um, if you think that you can define 
faith without Abraham, then you've misunderstood both of them. Maybe within sort of the tradition, the Jewish and Christian traditions, if you think you've understood what patience is without Job, if you can think you can do it without the whole story of the book of Job, then you've understood neither. You haven't understood the book of Job, but you've also not understood what, what patience is. So I mentioned a liberation theologian named Elsa Thomas, um, who talks about Job as having a, and I've just blanked on what it is, um, so the militant, militant patience, maybe, something like that. Um, some kind of a sense that patience isn't silence, that patience isn't submission, that patience is part of a relationship. It's, it's persistence in faith, that it's a persistence in commitment to a relationship and the expectation that the relationship will continue. So I think the really fun thing to do is to say those bits that people think demonstrate the impatience of Job may actually be the most interesting evidence for what a truly religious understanding of patience is. I, I agree. Yeah, let let the let the book kind of reorient you instead of you coming and tossing the book around. Mm -hmm. And and realize maybe that the the most faithful people will say some of what seem like the most reckless things, and that they're saying this not because they are without faith, uh, or because faith is impossible, but because faith demands more than more than human beings are capable of. And so it will take people to the to the limit. Uh, Frederick Buechner, who's kind of a pop existentialist theologian, talks about Abraham and Sarah laughing at God and how even even laughing at God about not about her having a baby at her age yeah. was an act of faith in some weird way. And I, I, I wonder if I wonder if maybe we're supposed to do something with Job here. Job, Job's losing his patience is itself an act of the utmost patience. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned that um, Aquinas has this very interesting reading of Job in which everything that Job says that seems like blasphemy is very close to it, and yet it isn't because God at the end says that, you know, the friends have spoken wrongly, not as Job has spoken rightly. By the way, that's one of those things you can only do if you take both the frame story and the poem themselves as legitimate and real. If you get rid of the frame story, then you actually get rid of the guarantee that Job is right in what he says. Or at least you don't have any guarantee. You don't have God saying this. You don't have God at the beginning saying there's nobody who's as virtuous as Job. And God saying again at the end um, that the other the three friends, not Elihu, as you mentioned, but the other friends have spoken wrong, have not spoken rightly of God as has Job. Of course, then you have to deal with that epilogue, which I think most people find fairly dissatisfying. Do you? I, I, I do. Yeah, I, I, it it feels, and I, I don't like to. I don't like to do this. I don't like to say, well, it must have been added later. But it, it does not feel part and parcel with the rest of the book, even even with the frame narrative. Mm -hmm. So you saw the the section which I, again, I, 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 the nice thing about this book was that I got to share all these readings I love. Uh -huh. So and and I show that he actually goes through a number of different readings over the course of more than a half century of dealing with his own experience and the experience of the Jews and the Holocaust and their survivors um, through the book of Job. Um, but he has that crazy idea at the beginning that the original ending was lost or maybe it was deliberately suppressed, that, they really, that it must have been something different. And then what I think is very interesting is that over the period of, over the decades of his speaking about Job and being a witness for the lost and stuff, then some, he comes to a position that's a little bit more like Ecclesiastes um, in which there's, you know, there's a time for protest and there's a time for faith. And, and by the end of it, somehow the idea that this story, the ending of the story, couldn't possibly have been real, um, seems to have been nudged aside. And it's been nudged aside by the need for survival. That we might tell stories about how life is unbearable or how here's some philosophical dilemma that we will never solve. 
And when we're talking about it and trying to take it seriously, we might, say, we might have to say, everything else stops. Life can't go on until we've solved this. But with time, life does have to go on. And maybe the miracle is that life does go on, even when, by all rights, it shouldn't, because of this huge problem that we've discovered. So I mentioned um, Father Zosima and Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov talking about um, the mysterious weirdness that Job is able to forget his first children and love the new ones. And he doesn't say it's a mystery. He says the amazing thing is that he does. He does move on. He does somehow or other without, without dropping any of it, without saying, okay, we can move on, or without saying this chapter is ended, without saying, oh, well, shrug, um, that there actually is um, a lesson in the possibility of affirmation, of continued life in the face of loss. Um, at, in, in, that, in that difficult epilogue. If you read it the way they, these people do. If you read it in other ways, then God just sort of says, okay, can I plus reset now? We've played this game. Let's go back and start over again. And then Job says, okay, fine. Um, but why would anybody be interested in reading the book that way? Yeah, I would like to not be that cynical, at least. Yeah. But I, I think there must be parts of this book that, that kind of stick in everybody's craw. And that's the, that's the one that I find a little difficult to swallow. But maybe it'll get easier as I get older. Well, one, one um, Bruce Zuckerman, I'm, I'm, I'm finding ways of mentioning most of the people I stole from or cribbed my best ideas from, best ideas in the books from. Bruce Zuckerman has this very, very, I think, and to me, intellectually compelling, I, don't, I can't assess the evidence, um, claim that there was, within, there, was an, there, was an un, there was an oral tradition in which Job's children are brought back to life. So it's not that the first ten children die so that Job can be tested for whatever reason. Um, and then they're replaced by 10 other kids, which just does seem entirely monstrous. Um, but that, of course, it's the same 10 kids who come back. Well, I'd like that a little better, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sort of torn when I come across a reading like that, and it's like, oh, this, 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 is, this is making me so happy. Uh-oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's not supposed to be making me happy. I mean, um, but I think in some way it, it, it helps – it would be very interesting to have this discussion then and say, in what ways, suppose one were writing this book um, and you had available the possibility that these 10 kids came back. And wouldn't that make much more sense? Because it wasn't about them. Their suffering doesn't serve. I mean, it's, it's, it's about Job. So why not, you know, put them off stage and then bring them back? That's what William Blake does. Um, but I can also see somebody saying, no, but then it's no longer true to life anymore. In life, when people die, they're gone. Or when somebody's life is destroyed, it's gone. When somebody's, when an entire, and you think about all these, these, these towns in the Philippines that were just sort of wiped away by the, they're, they're gone. So maybe there's a truth even in the painful fact that these, these, these 10 first kids are gone. And that they, they will build a new town on top of the one that was there. And it doesn't mean that you don't miss what was there, but it does mean that you can continue living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then in the uh, Testament of Job, um, Job's first kids are up there in heaven waiting for him. So everybody wins. Well, um, Job has proved of perennial interest to artists and poets and playwrights as well. And you've talked a little bit about the um, the icon on the front of the uh, the book, but are there any other adaptations of the Book of Job that you particularly like? Um, lots of them. Actually, this gives me a chance, if you don't mind. There's one, one thing. I only got to quote one line from it in the book that I, I, I simply adore. It um, was written by Robert Frost, our great 
20th century poet. It's called A Mask of Reason. And it's a semi-frivolous re... It's a continuation of the book of Job. It claims to be um, the missing chapter. And so a thousand years after the end of this story, God finds Job and Mrs. Job, who've been puttering along for a while, and comes up to him and says, um, can I read a little bit from it? It's not... Oh, no, absolutely. Please go ahead. So God says, I've had you on my mind a thousand years to thank you someday for the way you helped me establish once for all the principle there is no connection man can reason out between his just deserts and what he gets. Virtue may fail and wickedness succeed. T'was a great demonstration we put on. Too long I've owed you this apology for the apparently unmeaning sorrow you were afflicted with in those old days. But it was of the essence of the trial you shouldn't understand it at the time. It had to seem unmeaning to have meaning. And it came out all right. I have no doubt you realize by now the part you played to stultify the Deuteronomist and change the tenor of religious thought. My thanks are to you for releasing me from moral bondage to the human race. The only free will there at first was man's, who could do good or evil as he chose. I had no choice, but I must follow him with forfeits and rewards he understood, unless I like to suffer loss of worship. I had to prosper good and punish evil. You changed all that. You set me free to reign. You are the emancipator of your God. And as such, I promote you to a saint. So it goes on beyond this. um, And the ending is really rather maudlin. But I think there's something deeply profound about this insight. The sense that there's something in the book of Job that frees God from human from bondage to human understandings of things. Mm-hmm. I, I do like that. I like that quite a bit. I, I, I'm not familiar with that poem. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it, it's it's not anthologized much. Um, I think because the rest of it is 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 quite dated. It sort of imagines there's this scene where um, Job, by the way, is not super interested in this. And he's first first he's very gracious about this. And there's a suggestion. It's, you know, it's been really been really kind of a long time. And you could have told me this before. But then finally Job says, I really need to ask. Just, just tell me why. I mean, just, just tell me why. And then God starts to tell him, and it's so uninteresting, that Job says, no, I don't want to know. And then, and then somebody mentions the devil, and the devil shows up, and then Mrs. Job pulls out her Kodak and has the three of them posed for a photo. So I oh can my. see. So yeah, I think so, it might be better without that part. But this, but this central part, I think, is really, really, really names something very, 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 very powerful. And I think part of what what speaks to me about it is this sense that there was also a, a kind of sacrifice on the part of God that, that comes with inscrutability. So just that he to has say, to remove himself from the earth in some way. Yeah, and, and open himself to misunderstanding and, and, and resentment and, 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 to su- and to suffer that. And does that, I also love the line about you must. You realize by now the part you played to stultify the Deuteronomist. <laughs> it's like um, the Book of Job is the one that frees both God and the human being to actually have a relationship that isn't a tit for tat thing. Not, not that what somebody once called the vending machine God, which is the most horrible thing there is. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. You decide which number you want. You put in the right number of coins, press the number, and then you get it. And then it's and and there is a very powerful sense in which the Book of Job is the book that 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 decouples these things and so, so allows the true, the true wonder and profundity of, of, of human experience and the experience of God to 
but, it's, but in so doing, it makes it difficult. It makes it difficult, and it keeps it difficult. And I guess part of what, what, what I like about this is that it's difficult not just for us. That it's, 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 it, it must be painful in some, in some way for the universe. Well, I like that. Well, this book took you three years. Uh, what, are you, uh, what are you working on next, if you don't mind my asking? I'm, it's, I have a project that's called, it's, it's really in its baby stage, and I really don't know what form it's going to take, but I'm calling it Wider Moral Communities. And it's an attempt to think about comparative religious ethics or ways of talking about religious ethics um, in, say, American university settings, where there's a tendency to suppose that ethics itself is, everybody understands it, it's secular, it should be accepted. And religious ethics just adds complications that a few people believe in because they believe in one thing or another. So some people believe in karma, and some people believe that there's a creator, and some people think there's a covenant. But basically, ethics is the same thing for everybody until you add the, the bells and whistles. And I think that doesn't get at how deep the differences between different religious ethics are. And my sense is that one way of sharing with students a sense of the depth of the difference between ethical traditions is to think about what I'm calling like non-human agents. So it's not just that ethics is about people and then you add religion at the end, um, but that a religious ethics, which is any ethics, starts with a sense of who belongs to the moral community? Who do I have a moral relationship to? Who am I involved with? And I think in every religious tradition there are non-humans involved in some form. If you can't forget the dead is non-human or the unborn is non-human or saints or relics or if you're an animist and you believe in totemic, totemic spirits or if you believe as some people doing animal theology do now that, that animals are a very important part of it. But you could get a better sense of um, what it is that makes a particular religious tradition's ethics what it is if you start out with a broader sense of all the other, everybody else who's involved. For a theistic ethics, obviously, then you'd start with God. Um, so that God doesn't come at the end, but really at the beginning. Or if you believe that there are ancestral spirits that you're connected to, they don't come on at the end as some kind of an afterthought, but are put where they belong as sort of the sources of people's being. And I was talking to somebody about this, and they said, well, how on earth did you get from the book of Job to that? Oh, it makes perfect sense to me. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> well, I mean... It Job seems to be a book very much about our obligations, not just to one another, but to God and to the world. And to, I mean, you, you even get the devil in there as this ethical agent with whom mm -hmm. God is making these bargains and has to, has to live up to his side of them. And I mean, it, 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 it's, not a, it's not a one step move, but it seems like they're on similar planes at least. I'm starting to realize there is as well. Um, and I think also if you look at God's speeches, again, God's speeches are about all these other animals. And it suggests that God has a moral relationship with all of them, or a relationship of some kind. That we don't know about. That we don't know about. Um, but somehow or other, if we want to understand what God wants of us, then maybe it would be better to understand what God wants of everyone else. Or maybe, you, you know, that's, that's the Archimedean point for transcending a merely human understanding of the human to get the, the larger ethical calling. So that's, that's the next project, and I have no idea what shape it'll take, um, but... I'm looking forward to, to getting into it. Well, in the meantime, our listeners will, I hope, buy your book. We'll have a link to it on our website, which is uh, christianhumanist.org. Uh, Mark, do you have a website or anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I don't. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I, uh, I, I do want to mention ju just uh, just here at the end the, the wonderful quote you have on your faculty website at the, at the new school. Um, I, thought this, I thought this was so wonderful. 
Is it the, the liberal illiberal one? Uh-huh. <laughs> the study of religion okay. and liberal education are indispensable to each other because religion is so often a liberal and liberal so often anti-religious. It seems to uh, it seems to sum up what you were just talking about, actually. That's my life at the new school. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful quote for, for both sides, really. Well, so, thank you so much for appearing on the show, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you so much for, uh, for seeking me out. This has been really interesting. Thank you.